So, uh, it is good to be here this morning. Um, if you didn't notice, out in the front, uh, there are these little note card things. On the back of them, it has kind of this first third of the reading of Mark. So, we'll, this, is, this will be the schedule for the next, really until Thanksgiving, uh, when we'll take a break from Mark and do something else for a week or two. Uh, but this is the schedule for that first half. So if you're reading along or you're trying to be ready for the Sunday service and the sermon, um, the schedule is back there of how I've broken up the book of Mark. Uh, so grab one on your way out. Uh, is there anybody in this room, and actually don't raise your hand, you don't, you don't have to acknowledge this, uh, but who is super blind. I mean, if you take your, your glasses off or you forget your contacts somewhere, you're running into walls. Uh, I am... And maybe, maybe you're old enough that your glasses, because you, your eyes are that bad, they were just thick. I mean, Coke bottle, you know, big, big suckers. Um, I remember being in the eye doctor's office one time and being in there uh, with my sister and my mom, and we were all getting checkups. And I remember the, my sister sitting in the chair and the eye doctor going through the normal process of, you know, just checking where she's at. I remember her saying, I can't see the big E. I was like, Man, I'm blind, but I'm not that blind. Um, and, and as I've gotten older, now that biggie is fuzzier and fuzzier as I sit in that chair. Uh, but I, even with my glasses off, I can, I can probably still do most things. I could drive in an emergency if I needed to. I can eat food. I, I mean, I can see my hand come to my face. But I am dependent on my glasses to do things that require precision, and things that help me understand other things. And so driving while I can do it, seeing the little details, when I have my glasses on, it becomes much easier to do. Or cooking, knowing where my knife is at all times, and uh, seeing those with my glasses on, reading. I could read. I would need to be this close to the book. I could do it. But with my glasses, it just becomes easier. It allows me to see things more crisp, more cleanly, and it gives me a sense of confidence that without them, I might not have. And if you wear glasses, if you wear contacts, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your whole day is thrown off if you've ever broken your glasses in the middle of the day. So we've started this series in Mark. This is week three. And what Mark has done, even from the very first words of the book, is he has laid out for us who Jesus is. In those very first words, in his opening words, Mark t tells us exactly who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We see that in the words uh, of John the Baptist as he's proclaiming the message of the coming Messiah. We see it as John points back to the scriptures of, of Malachi and Isaiah as he rem uh, reminds the people of the promised <coughs> excuse me, Messiah that was to come. And then later in chapter 1, we see where Jesus um, himself tells us who he is, that he is the one coming that was promised. Mark's aim in the opening words of the book is to frame for us a structure and the purpose of why he's writing. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about that. Mark is writing his main purpose uh, as he writes to a group of Christians, both Jew and Gentile, in the city of Rome. He's writing to help them see who Jesus is truly. And that's the Son of God, the Messiah that's been promised. 
And so as Mark writes, he does so so that his readers in Rome, and, and really for us today, we can put on these glasses that he's handing over to us, and we can begin to see who Jesus is more clearly. That's what the whole book is about. And this morning, what we're going to look at, and it brings us to the point for the morning, <coughs> is that Christ reigns over the kingdom of God with authority and with power. Christ reigns over the kingdom of God with authority and with power. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, we're finishing up chapter 1 this morning. We're going to start in verse 21. And really, I'm going to start with these first two verses in 21 and 22. And it says this, Mark 1, 21. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue, and on the Sabbath began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. <coughs> what Mark does in these first two verses of this third half of chapter one is he's starting to point us to that idea that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, and he starts by showing us that Jesus uh, begins his, his public ministry, not in Jerusalem, not necessarily with the Jewish people, but outside of Jerusalem, outside of the city, with his own people, uh, the people that he would have grown up with in Galilee. And so he goes to these different cities that were made up of all kinds of different people who had traveled and settled there. And he starts in Capernaum. And if uh, you saw the Facebook page, I posted a video this week that gave some background uh, on the city of Capernaum. And if you haven't, go back and look at it because it was a great video. It's about seven minutes long. But I think Mark intentionally starts here because he wants to make note that Jesus, as he, as he shares this message of what he's come to do and who he is as the Son of God, that this message is inclusive of everyone. It wasn't just a promise uh, made just specifically to the Jews. We know that there was a promise made to the Jews, but also that it included all of humanity, and Mark points to this. And it brings us to the first point, that as king, Jesus has authority to teach the message of God, and this message is for all people. This city, Capernaum, it was a Roman center. It was right off of the Sea of Galilee. It was a place that uh, merchants would come and trade was going on. And so there was, it was a place of economic importance. Uh, there was all kinds of people coming through. It was a very transient city because of that. Uh, Rome itself had um, interest in this city. They placed troops in this city. And so there was a military outpost here. And at, at one point, uh, most scholars think that there was a population of up to 10,000 people. This was a big place. This was a big place that had a lot of people coming in and out. And this is where Jesus chooses to start. That's what Mark's pointing to, is that this is a message for all people of all walks of life. And again, I think it, it, we go back to the idea that Mark is writing to this group in Rome who was made up of all kinds of people different ethnic types, different socioeconomic situations. Paul's writing to a diverse group, and, and he's pointing to that by saying, look how Jesus starts his ministry. Look where he chooses to, to start this. 
And as Jesus begins to teach in Capernaum, as he's doing ministry here, there's most likely a a diverse group of people. Mark's audience was diverse. The city where Jesus, Jesus starts his ministry is diverse. Look at us here in Westfield. It's growing and growing, and it's been doing that for the past 10 plus years, and it's becoming more diverse. Our neighbors look different. They sound different. They talk different. That's, that's a good thing because that means that you and I get to build relationship with them and share the message of Jesus with them. And as we will look at the rest of the book, there are times where Mark, because he knows his audience, because he knows that some of these people didn't grow up in the Jewish uh, system, religious system, they don't know the, the culture, they don't know the rituals, he has to explain them. And we'll see that throughout the book. But that same idea carries over As we talk about Jesus beginning his ministry here with, in Capernaum with a diverse group of people, it, it's interesting because it, it says that Jesus uh, began to teach and that when he taught, he taught with authority and that it was different than the way the scribes were teaching. Uh, an interesting piece about that is that uh, the people that would have been in charge of kind of setting up who was teaching in the synagogue most likely they would have invited Jesus. Some scholars say that Jesus kind of walked in and just started. Uh, but Jesus, the people knew who Jesus was. They knew his teaching. They knew that this guy from uh, Nazareth was teaching and it was different than what they had seen. And so people, when he comes, they, they begin to show up. And we see a transition in what's going on as Jesus begins to teach here is that Mark uh, notes in the first part that John is proclaiming who Jesus is. He doesn't, he's not necessarily teaching, he's, he's sharing a message of who's coming and what he's coming to do, but now there's a transition that's gone on and Jesus is now teaching while also sharing that message. One commentator says uh, about Jesus teaching in the synagogue, says that the right to teach in the synagogue was controlled by the leaders. And the fact that Jesus was invited or allowed to do so suggests that he had already been active in the area long enough to be known and respected. People knew who Jesus was, and as he begins to teach, he does so in a way that's very profound and was different than anyone else had been doing in that time. And I think a part of that is, and, and if you've been in church for some time or you know a little bit about Jesus or who he is or what his message is about, Jesus isn't necessarily teaching religion. He's not at all teaching religion, actually. Where the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders in the Jewish system, that was their job. That's how they had power. That's how they had influence was teaching religion. Jesus is not doing that. He's teaching relationship. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference between religion versus relationship. And so when Jesus teaches with authority, he does so because he's connected to the Father. There's a relationship there that really the religious leaders maybe understood in their brains but never played it out in their hearts and in their, in their real lives. Jesus was preaching about repentance and believing 
in the Son of God. That's a very different message than what the religious leaders were teaching that was, hey, do these things and you'll be good. Check off this box on the list and you're going to be saved. That's very different than what Jesus comes and starts to say. There's, there's more work in what Jesus teaches. There's more dedication in what Jesus teaches than what the Pharisees and the other religious leaders were teaching. And, and with that comes more accountability. Because if you're just following the religious system and you're just checking off a box, if you screw up, you can go back and check off a box again. But when you're walking in relationship with Jesus, when you're following Jesus, when you're in relationship with the Father, there's much more accountability there. Not just between you and Jesus, but the community around you. And that's harder to do. It's harder to live in that system. But it's a good one. Jesus has authority to teach the message of God. Mark sets that up in, in the opening books of uh, the opening words of this book. And here we begin to see how that's playing out. Let's move on to verse 23, and we'll read through 28 and then stop and talk about that for a second. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in the synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw himself into convulsion, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. When Jesus speaks, not only does he have the authority to teach the message of God, but he speaks with that authority. So much so that when the unclean spirits heard his voice, when they saw him, they knew who he was. And when they hear his voice, they have to listen. The demons, this is an interesting chunk of passage here because if we look at it very closely, it, it, there's a lot to unpack here. The first part being that the demons knew who Jesus was. The demons saw Jesus coming and he starts to freak out. They were able to identify Jesus as the one from Nazareth and he ends that whole section with really telling everyone who Jesus is as the Holy One of God. They knew why he was sent and what his mission was. And, and at the fullness of the kingdom that we'll see when Jesus comes back, uh, he will, they, they knew that there's something coming where everything that is wrong in the world will be made right, which you and I know is the returning of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth that he's going to establish. They know the why. And they knew how Jesus was going to do this. While Jesus doesn't do it specifically right here in the way that they talk about, that is the ultimate end game for them. They are going to be destroyed. They're going to suffer in a lake of fire is what scripture says. But they knew that there was an end to what they were going to, going to be able to do. They knew that. The demons believed in what they knew about Jesus. That's why they were afraid of him. 
And it brings up a question that I've wrestled through, I'm sure you've wrestled through. But have we matured enough in our knowledge of Jesus to believe even the way they believe who Jesus is? The demons know who Jesus is. They acknowledge it. They know why he's coming. They ask him not to destroy him. Are we even in that space as followers of Jesus? Do we truly believe and know who Jesus is? And again, we're walking through the book of Mark. That's his whole purpose. But because Jesus speaks with an authority that's been given to him by the Father, his words offer true relief and immediate action. That's what true authority is. That when you say something, it's done, and it's done right, and it's done in that moment. That's what we see Jesus doing. He speaks with authority, and they listen. This this man, and we'll see more encounters with demon-possessed folks in the book of Mark, but this guy, he was suffering. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, he's suffering, he's tired, he's been oppressed for who knows how long, and he's hurting, he's lost control. And when Jesus speaks, his words, his whispers, they offer hope. And a very real hope for this guy. And the, the, the amazing thing about this passage here is that that same hope that this man experiences where he's freed from that bondage, that same hope is a hope you and I get to experience as well. It's a hope that we can trust in, that we can look forward to, that Jesus offers to us. And we talked about that last week. Ultimately, authority is a gift that's to be stewarded and used cautiously. And we see that in the life of Jesus. He doesn't flippantly come in Capernaum, walking down the middle of the street, knowing he's God, and start healing people left and right. While he could have, there's a humility that comes with that authority. And we see that in the life of Christ. In thinking about what, what does healthy authority look like, and as Quakers, I know that this, that word authority we, it's like pulls at us sometimes. There is a such thing as a healthy authority. One, it's not lorded over people. We talked about that last week in, in Jesus offering this gift to us. It's, it's not a thing that's forced on us. It's not something that's hung over our heads. He says, this is, this is a gift, and it's up to you. You decide. And that plays out in, his, in the authority that's given to him and the authority he exercises as king. It's not lorded over us. Healthy authority is humble and compassionate. Jesus sees this guy that's hurting. And it's not only this person, but it's, there's many more healings and interactions with people that are suffering. And Jesus has compassion for them. And, and oftentimes, it's not in this flashy way that he heals them, but in a very humble, soft way. And true, healthy authority is always looking to help others. It's always got the best interest of others in, in mind. And as Jesus starts to heal people, that's what's going on here. He wants people to feel relief, to feel safe, to experience 
his goodness. As king who reigns over the kingdom of God, Jesus speaks with authority. Let's continue on in verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John, Simon's mother-in-law. Simon is Peter, by the way, in case you don't remember that. We're going to see when that happens that Jesus changes his name uh, in the next chapter. But Simon's Peter, so keep that in mind. Simon's mother-in-law was laying in the bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and he raised her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. When evening came after the sun had set, they brought him to all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. When Jesus speaks, he speaks with authority. Uh, As king, Jesus ministers with power. Jesus rules powerfully, powerfully over both worlds, the physical world and the spiritual world. And these two stories of healings indicate that. The first story where there's this demon-possessed man, this is a spiritual matter that's going on here, and Jesus has full control and dominion over that. And when he speaks, they listen and obey. And now we have Peter's mother-in-law who has a fever and sick and can't even get out of bed. And when Jesus hears of this, they, they bring him to her, and he heals her, this physical uh, ailment that's going on in her body, Jesus has dominion over and heals her. When Jesus rules, he does so powerfully in both the physical world and the spiritual world. What Mark is doing here as he writes about these stories is he's showing that Jesus is the Messiah sent by the Father who has come to make things right. He is the Son of God who rules in both the physical world and the spiritual world. You know, we went through the whole Oikos series and the 8 to 15 idea, and here we see that 8 to 15 idea working itself out. You've got Peter who, in his circle of people, in his 8 to 15, is his mother-in-law. And because Peter is interacting with Jesus, has a relationship with Jesus, he can point her to Jesus and say, I've got a solution. I've got a solution to your, to your fever, to your sickness. Let me go get Jesus. Jesus uses those who, whom he calls to bring about potential opportunities for life-changing experiences with him. That's the whole 8 to 15 thing. Right, That God has placed you in a specific place around specific people with a specific call to minister to them that only you are called to do. I can't do it. M&O can't do it. God has placed you there. 
And those people are watching you live your life. And Jesus is going to use you to bring people to him. Peter's mother-in-law is sick and can hardly get out of bed and Jesus heals her. God might use you in the same way with your 8 to 15. Maybe you don't see it right now. Maybe you have no idea and you're trying to figure out still who is even on that list for you or what that looks like. But I, I promise God has placed you specifically where you are around those people for a purpose. You might be the one that brings those people to Jesus. And they might find healing because of that. And so I think it's a reminder for us that we have to be faithful. We have to remain faithful to the call to proclaim and share the good news of Jesus because it offers hope that can't be found anywhere else. Hope that the world tries to emulate, but they fail every single time. Right? With money with drugs and sex and all the stuff that we know is out there. It fails. It leaves us empty. But Jesus is saying, I I don't do that. What I have to offer doesn't leave you empty. It makes you whole. I think this next part... I've wrestled all week on whether to to speak on this specific part because it's hard to hear, but I think it's a reality that oftentimes we don't know how to navigate or sit in well, Um, and and so I'm going to share it anyways. Jesus can and he does heal people, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, whatever. However you need healing, Jesus can do that. And here's the hard part. Sometimes he may not. As much as you've prayed for it, as much as others have prayed for it, for whatever reason that you and I may never understand, even when we're in heaven and able to speak and be with Jesus, we may not get it. And that's hard for us to understand as as, uh, finite beings. There's only so much our brains can comprehend. But Isaiah 55 reminds us that The way Jesus thinks, the way God thinks is different than the way you and I can think. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as as the heavens is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We may not know why Jesus doesn't answer that prayer that we pray every single night for healing in a specific area. And I'm not just pulling this out of anywhere. I think if you look at verse 34, Mark could have very well said that everyone was healed from their disease and every demon was cast out, but that's not what it says. It says that Jesus healed many and that many demons were cast out. And by using that word, even in the Greek, there's implications there that it didn't happen for everyone. Again, we don't know why. But in seasons, I'm taking off my pastor hat for a second, put on my Josh hat. 
in seasons for me where I've had prayers that I've prayed every single day or I've had others pray for me and it just, for whatever reason, God decides not to answer them. The story that helps me the most understand what I'm supposed to do with that is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's the one that I go to all the time because as they're in front of the king who's demanding worship of him and not God, those three men stand there and say, we're not gonna do it. And the king's word is, okay, fine, don't do it, but I'm going to throw you in the fire, and you're going to die a horrible death, and it's going to be very painful. And here's the part that gets me every single time. The response is, we're not going to worship you. We're not going to call you God, because we, we worship the one true God. And you can throw us in the fire, and we believe that God will save us from that fire. But even if he doesn't, he's still good. It gets me every single time because that's, that's the lens that we have to put on as we, we pray these hard things to God because we can. God is big enough to hold it. He's big enough to take it. He desires for us to come to him with these things. But even if he doesn't answer that prayer, he's still God and he's still good. That story is not the only one that in Scripture we see how do we deal with suffering? How do, do, how do we deal with hard things that we're asking for, uh, for deliverance from? The story of Job, if you've not read it or have not read it lately, go do that. That's a hard one to read because that dude loses everything. I mean, he suffers physically, emotionally, relationally. He, he loses everything. And if you go to that story and you see what happens, God allows Satan to do that. And it's not easy. It's not like Job gets all these things taken away and he's always like happy-go-lucky, yay Jesus, yay God. He gives God some attitude and God puts him in his place. But even in that, he, he takes the hard things to God and God allows him the space to deal with what he needs to deal with. But what we see in Job is still that perseverance, the endurance to say, I'm still going to love God and worship him, even in the midst of hard suffering. Our suffering can be used for a kingdom purpose. I know that's, no one wants to suffer. I'm, I'm being honest. Like that's, I don't want to wake up in the morning thinking, yay, today I'm going to suffer. Let's go, go get them. None of us do that. The reality is though, because of sin in this world, you and I do suffer. Sometimes because of consequences of our own doings, others, it's because it's out of our control. But our suffering can be used for a kingdom purpose. And it may not always benefit us. That's the hard part, right? As American Christians, like if it doesn't benefit me, then why, why even do it? But it might help encourage others. It might benefit someone else to see you suffering and suffering in a way that honors Christ. Again, if you go back to the 8 to 15 stuff and you remember what Mercer says, there's a front row of people in your life. They're watching you. 
They're watching how you deal with the hard things, the curveballs that are thrown at you. They're watching how you deal with losing loved ones. They're watching how you deal with uh, losing your job. They're watching how you deal with road rage when you're driving and that person cuts you off. They're watching you. They're watching even when you suffer. I'm going to say one last thing about this and we'll move on. Even though they're watching, even though there are people watching you in your life, even as you suffer, what I'm not saying is that we pretend that everything's good. We can't do that either. Because that's just lying. When we pretend and we put this front up that everything's good, that's not what we're called to do either. So you find those safe people. Be vulnerable with them. Share with them. Let others in, in, your, in your circles, in your worlds, in your oikos, allow them in to see how to suffer for the sake of Christ. Let's finish out chapter 1 with verse 35. It says, Very early the next morning, while it was still dark, he got up and went out, and he made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages, so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. This is verse 39. He went in, into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came. Sorry, hold on. Okay, actually, we're going to stop there with verse 39. I'll read it one more time because I just messed it all up. Uh, we went into the, in, he went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So Jesus continues to do what he's been doing. He's healing people. He's going into the, ne the next town. And it brings us to our last point. In the kingdom of God, with Jesus as king, you and I can find rest, true rest in him. In verse 29, it's not a coincidence, or sorry, in verse 21, it's not a coincidence that when Mark starts this new scene, right? We talked about Mark being an action-packed movie where he, there's cutscenes from one thing to the next. Verse 21 is one of those. He cuts to this next scene in this new event that's going on. It's not a coincidence that he sets it up that Jesus is walking into the synagogue on the Sabbath. There's a contrast that Mark is setting up here as he goes into these stories of healing and, and, and deliverance. He's pointing out what the Sabbath has become in this religious Jewish system. The Sabbath, if you remember, we did a whole series on rest at the beginning of the summer. The Sabbath was meant to be a good thing for the people of God. It was a built-in day of rest where everything else could be set aside for one day and people could enjoy their creator and enjoy their family and enjoy his creation. 
It was a gift from God to his people. And what it turns into is something completely different. And it's turned into that. It's morphed into something different by the religious leaders, by the institution itself that sets it up in the religious system. The rest that the Sabbath was to offer no longer exists, and it's turned into work. To keep the Sabbath meant there was so much work that they had to do to be ready for that, that its original intent is thrown out the window. And what Mark is doing by setting up these, this selection of Scripture this way is that he's pointing to that promise of Jesus the Messiah making things right, this idea of Sabbath and rest and being made whole. It can't come from the religious system. It comes through relationship with Jesus. And what we see Jesus doing is offering real true, tangible rest for these people that are hurting. And he brings relief and peace. To those who are suffering. He is the true Sabbath. He is the true rest that the people needed. Jesus becomes in the flesh the very thing that people needed the most. Was true rest. True rest is a freedom from the bondage of sin. And he offers that not with strings attached. He says, repent and believe. Repentance opens the door to forgiveness and belief opens the door to true righteousness, not this fake uh, facade that we put on of righteousness. It's not the artificial self-righteousness that the religious leaders held on so tightly to. True rest is found in Jesus because he has real power and real authority to change the lives of all of humanity. Both in the present, right now, And in the time that's to come, and for all of eternity, Jesus has that power and authority to change our lives. True rest that's found in Christ is offered freely to everyone. It's not demanded like the religious leaders, it's not something that you earn like the religious system. It's not a got you, but it's a please take it. An open hand. And here's why this is important. True rest is only found in Jesus. And with this true rest that we can experience, it's the lens that we can put on to see Jesus as king. That's Mark's whole purpose. To show us that Jesus is the king. And not only is he king, he's a good king. He's a loving king. He's a thoughtful king. But you and I, we can't see that if we don't have those lenses on. 
to see who Jesus truly is.